uh, we have a plethora of guests um, and uh, the usual faces. So with me, we have Peter Ellison. Good evening, everyone. John Joe Cosgrove. Hello, all. And our guests tonight, we've got Heidi Goody. Hi there. And Ian Grant. Hey there. <laughs> we've just had a bit of a nightmare with with uh with skype uh and uh and, and togetherness and it not refusing to go into grid mode and stuff but i think we i think we got through it i think we got through it so um lady and gent how, how are your things how's how's life how's covid been treating you very well thank you yes yes i've um i've had a great day i've, I've been out and about in the world and, and by comparison, um, I have just come out of 10 days isolation, oh, uh, having encountered, uh, uh, yes, uh, in my day life. So uh, we, we were, we're leading very separate lives at the moment, aren't we, Heidi? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, do you want to tell us about yourselves then? I'm not sure. How, how would, um, you, from what I believe, you're, you're co-authors. Um, can you tell us how, how that works, uh, what, what you're writing, something about yourselves? So, so we, um, we're both married, but not to each other. So, uh, but we've been writing together for um, 10 years now. <laughs> we, uh, we met at Birmingham Writers Group and started writing together um, I, I thought we'd just write a short story, but Ian was all up for writing a novel. So we wrote our, our first novel and went down the independent publishing route. Um, and that was Clovenhoof, um, Satan, made redundant and sent to live in Birmingham. Um, and then we've written, I think we've written about 20 novels now across different genres, but always comedy. We, we do like to write comedy. Yeah, it, it is shocking that we probably don't know how many novels we've written now. It depends how you count them, I think. That's a good now, thing, how, surely. How big, how big does a book have to be to count as a novel is, is one of those questions. So, you know, we've, we've got sort of part novels, you know, almost novels and so on. But I think we're up to 23 or 24. Um, so it's been, it's been 10 years of us working together um, in, in various different ways. Um, and as Heidi says, our first novel together was Clovenhoof, which is the first in the seven book series, basically about Satan's adventures living in suburban England. Um, in the last five years, we also did the Odd Job series, um, has been variously described as sort of like, a bit like the uh, Charles Strauss Laundry Files or like, you know, The Office Meets Benny Black, um, about, about the... Uh, the uh, government bureaucrats who have to deal with the evil Lovecraftian monsters that live beneath our world, uh, and various other projects here, there, and everywhere. And um, we, we've still not killed each other, so that's really quite good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. What, that's why, always a plus. Yeah. Uh, why did you choose to work together rather than pursuing your own projects independently? It's a really that's interesting a question. question. I... Um... I mean, I can tell you how we started writing together, but the reasons why we prefer it to, to write in independently. We, we, we had a, a workshop, Birmingham Writers Group had a workshop about collaborative writing. And, um, and, and the person that ran the workshop went through all the different methods and pros and cons. And at the end, he said, put your hand up if you want to write with somebody else. And Ian and I were, were literally the only two with that hands up. We were, we were both super keen. 
and and you know it took us a little while to 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 get round to it after that but i i think we both had a real manic enthusiasm for it um for for, for reasons that i i i'm not sure about but yeah we we we, we quite enjoy the process it's um it's it's a I think it's quite a sociable process. Do you not tread on each other's toes at all, then? Uh, that's a really, a really interesting point. When we first started out, because it is that thing that, you know, writing is ostensibly a solitary activity. Writing is one of those weird careers to go into because often people who go into writing, you know, we're quite introverted people. We're quite wrapped up in our own worlds and you do this very private thing. And then if you have a modicum of success, then everyone kind of goes, you know, now you must go out and meet the world and, you know, be a performing actor on stage. Um, so it's like, so writing is very solitary. Um, so actually, when you get to do it with somebody else, it's kind of really comforting and nice to help you. Do we turn each other? So we did start out and we said we, we copied the rule. I think it was uh, Richard Curtis and Ben Elton when they were writing Blackadder together. And they had a rule, which is if one of them crosses out a joke, the other one isn't allowed to put it back in again afterwards. You know, you can't sort of re-undo the thing the other person did. Um, and I suppose we've had a couple of um, tussles and, and backwards and forwards about things. Subtle. We've never argued. Um, it'd be nice if, like, you know, one of us one day just kind of went, I've had enough of this, and just <laughs> the wall and stormed out and go, you know, and you're a lousy writer. Um <laughs> No, we 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 never really got to that point. Um, we have we have sometimes our brains have gone different ways. We started on different projects, kind of thing, headed off different directions. Um, we've always come back together, and uh, yeah, I, I think we still very much enjoy it because um, it is an odd process. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I, I mean obviously there are lots of um, writers who are collaborative who work together I'm trying to think of examples now uh, famous uh, partnerships um and um you know that the, how they work together whether there's one main partner and the other one builds it there are examples i, I think there are good examples of particularly among science fiction writers where you buy a book and there's like someone's name in big writing at the top like you know uh, arthur c clark or Anne mccaffrey or isaac asimov and then there's another name in tiny writing underneath. <laughs> it's the person they worked with, but who probably did most of the writing. Oh, by the way, I'm not casting any uh, aspersions there about the works of great authors there, by the way. But, you know, the idea that someone is basically doing the donkey work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. So there's different ways of working together. And, uh, yeah, finding a method that works for you is kind of important. So how, do, how does that work? So... I know when if if I want to do something, I'm very well minded about it, and I, I you know I'll zone in and just do that. But if somebody tries to get me to do something else, my mind's just like I am just totally not into this. So what happens if you've got like you said you've got different project? You're going off in one way, Heidi's going off in another way. How do you bring that together to a point where you're both sort of interested? I think I think we've um, we we worked together long enough now to to recognize and understand um, who's best off doing what thing. Um, so we, we, we are able to organize the work quite well. And, and one of the, I think, keys to, to making this work, I'm, I'm convinced anyway, is, is having a similar work ethic. So you could be, I, 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 I honestly believe that outstrips 
talent, ideas, everything else, if you have a, a similar approach to the work, and I think we both do, um, then it, you can sort of iron out the other stuff. It's um, it's it's all it's all doable if you if you if you've got good communication and and, and we do. Um, we, we can normally iron things out. But yeah, we've we've, um, we've sorry. Sorry, I interrupted you there. I, I was just going to say that we've we've experimented with different models of working. You know, there's lots of different ways you can tackle the writing of a novel, and I think we've. We've, we haven't tried them all, but we've tried most of them. I remember be about three years ago, roughly about the same time, we both had dreams. We, we do this sometimes. Uh, Heidi Heidi has dreams and then and then says, let's write a novel about this. And, I, and I'm off and walking the dog and I go, let's write a novel about this. But it was about three years ago, we both had dreams at the same time. And I think Heidi's dream, I don't want to put words in your mouth there, Heidi, but I think your dream was about a, a family at breakfast and one of them had rented out part of their brain to a company or something. Um, <laughs> um, and, and around about the same time, I had a wonderful nightmare in which uh, me and my family, I was clearly a child again, were all sleeping in a room, and, and, and a Christmas elf came in to kill us. Um, and out of those two dreams, in, in, in that one year, we, we, we did end up writing them as two separate novels, the, the science fiction novel, Jappelink, about people renting out parts of their brain to a giant data company, um, and uh, Candy Canes and Buckets of Blood, which was about a tribe of murderers. <laughs> um, that sounds awesome. <laughs> It's uh, yeah, but you know, right? So sometimes you know, your, your, your dreams, you know, aren't necessarily the best guide to what should be a good story because <laughs> you know, three quarters of the way into a novel about murderous Christmas animals, you know, it's like, what happens now? And then someone goes, Well, then there's a zombie reindeer and it comes along, <laughs> and it, um, it writes itself, <laughs> it writes itself, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Heidi must be is very tolerant right now you see i'm, I'm still slogging through the open, not slogging powering through the opening chapters of a zombie novel in which um uh, again giant 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 uh, tech company nanotechnology to, is turning people into household appliances uh, i'm sure heidi's looking at kind of going ian what is this thing how can people be you know take toaster zombies seriously or you know microwave zombies seriously uh, and I'm sure I'll either gently shelve it at some point or we'll pick it up together as a project. Uh, we're very tolerant. Tolerant might be a good quality that we might have. I think so. <laughs> Do you what have... is your writing... Sorry, don't mind. No, no, you, you fire away, Pete. You go on. No, um, what, what's your writing process? I mean, obviously, when you're both working on a novel... Um, how do you both write in a novel at the same time without kind of tripping each over each other's toes in terms of the plot and make sure you're kind of writing in the same tone and following the, the same plot structure that you've both got in mind? Um, so Method A, the very first one that we used um, on Clovenhoof, we've, we've used this quite a lot, is where we... Um, we, we, we would write synopses for the chapters. We would meet, do some planning on paper, decide roughly what, what chapters we needed. One of us, well, no, both of us would write synopses for chapters anywhere in the book, really. Swap them over. The other person would write the chapter. Then we would swap back again for editing. And that way you smooth out the stylistic differences. So that's, that's the, the, the basic method. 
Um, but we've done lots of variations on that. Um, and, and the one that we've used quite often um, latterly, because we now know which, which things suit us best as writers, Ian, Ian is the master of witty dialogue. So when there's a, when there's a, a lot of talking and, and, and chit chat, Ian will do those bits. I like to do the um, slapstick and the action scenes. So we, we tend to carve it up by scene a little bit more now. Yeah, I was just going to say, because it is that element now, I think one of our models is, and I need to find a name for it that, you know, um, does it justice, but where Heidi goes along and sows chunks of chaos in the story, and then, and then I come along afterwards and sort of, um, sort of t t sew it together in some sort of way, and that, that that's that's not one thing. It, it's better. It's a bit. I always think it's a bit like. Um, it's a bit like in a James Bond movie where James Bond at the beginning of the film always gets given the gadgets that he'll need towards the end of the film. And of course, what happens there is the writers have written the story, and then they're going, "Oh dear." We have put James Bond in a corner here. He's, he's tied to a cage and the sharks are going to come and get him. You know, Dr. Kananga is, is, is about to win the day. I know we'll give him a, a, a you know a watch that is a saw blade and a magnet or whatever. Um, and, and I suppose the, the current, the, the more recent model is that Heidi has uh, lays down the book and then I come along like the writer and insert the gadgets beforehand that made the end of the book work. Um, and, and we have that kind of approach because I think also the two things that we do bring to it, uh, both positive things, is is Heidi brings an element of chaos, <laughs> uh, and I bring an element of order. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That, that, tension, that tension is never more clear than, than when you know I break out a spreadsheet. Oh, you know, it's all about spreadsheets. Got right. Uh, what this requires is a spreadsheet. Um, you know, and Heidi's going to go, no, you trampled over all my creativity. And I'm going, no, little things in little boxes with numbers at the end. And I think I think that, that, that's part of the, um, the, the the yin and yang that we kind of try and bring to things um, that works, certainly works for the time being. <laughs> Uh, the author we had last week, uh, Bri Bri uh, Bryony, um, she was uh, she used a spreadsheet, didn't she, Pete? Pete to sort of yep. kind of map out her her process. Yeah, um, never knock the power of a spreadsheet. <laughs> are you against them, Heidi? Do you, do you are you sort of kind of oh natural? It has to sort of kind of flow out. And, yeah, I I I think it goes back to when I first encountered spreadsheets. I just feel like they. They ruined my natural relationship with numbers. Yeah. <laughs> I do love so, a good spreadsheet, I have to say. Um, <laughs> so would it be fair to say that you, Heidi, are a pantser and Ian is a plotter? Oh, yes. Oh, you know these phrases, <laughs> these writer's <laughs> phrases. Yeah. Um, no, Heidi is very keen to just kind of like, you know, let, let's write, let's see where this goes. And I'm there kind of going, where's my three-act structure? You know, where's my genouement? Where's my payoff? Um, and, I, and I think that's uh, very, very, you know, very important. Which is weird when I think about it, because actually, in terms of our background jobs, before we, you know, uh, became, you know, writers, Heidi works in technology, and, you know, and I'm a school teacher. You know, Heidi's the one who's actually in the technical focus job, and I'm the one who, you know... Spends my day faffing around with kids, really. Um, <laughs> the fact that we 
reverse of that to the writing is interesting. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask as well is what software do you use? I mean, when you're kind of writing out the, the story, I mean, what software do you actually use to write out the entire novel and then kind of make sure it's all combined together in one document, manuscript? Um, we use Word, uh, nothing complicated. We use Word and Dropbox. Yeah, OK. okay. I think it's really important that Dropbox has been, you know, a big part of it. By the way, other file sharing services are available. <laughs> uh, but it is that business that if we were doing this 20 years ago, we would literally be posting things to each other. Well, OK, 20 years ago, we'd be emailing. But, you know, you'd actually have to rely on file transfer and personal file management. Heidi at one point, no, at many points, has suggested we'd use things like Google Docs or indeed, you know, uh, the, the live version of Word, um, you know, which fills me with terror. The idea that when you change a thing, it changes the thing. <laughs> as opposed to like, you know, processes where you change it and then you can save it or not save it and go back and undo it. And I know, I know the live documents have all of that functionality. But I, I'm quite frightened by the idea, but both in my personal life and at work, the idea that if I change that thing, it's changed for everybody right now. Um, and I think some collaborative writers, collaborative writers can use that kind of method. But I think there's an element that that's too much climbing without a rope for me. I like to have a certainty. Of, um, yeah, I think when you've got that sort of thing, uh, I can understand that. Like as much as I, I'm very much for using as you know whatever tech is is available and the, the 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 sort of the newer the better um i understand that you know things can go wrong and it's better to have that sort of kind of um each sort of draft you know it's it's safe then you've got it you saved it you pass it on they can then edit and come back and you can sort of you can keep a, a record of it you can keep track of it and so you know where things are whereas you know if you change it on on word and there's no sort of um uh, you know the history wipes out or something something goes wrong as and invariably can happen with these things um you know there's no going back from that you've got, you've got that element as well i'm not specifically speaking about our writing now you know i first started using computers personally in my life around, around about 25 years ago in the mid 90s you know i built myself the first 386 computer and you know you had that computer and you did your stuff like and i can't i don't know when the last time it happened in my life was but that thing that every few years a hard drive would crash and then you'd remember that you really had backed things up as well as you thought you had and then you'd have to cry about the things that you had lost you know and and if we do live in a world where that doesn't happen anymore um i don't think so, you know, the idea that, that, that your work is always there somewhere, your files, your music, your videos, whatever, they're always there somewhere. Whereas, you know, starting out in a world where those things could be gone, you know, in the blink of an eye. It's, it's true. Um, I, um, and I, I need to sort of back up stuff. Now, so I made multiple backups of things because I went through a stage where I had hard drives for backups, but just was like, oh, I'll, I'll sort it out at some other point in time. I'll do it again. And, and I had literally one hard drive, which had all my photographs on it, my music on it, um, stuff from my dad on it. And one day it just died. 
it literally just went and I hadn't backed up any of it and I tried to get it recovered and I couldn't and I lost everything and I've never felt so sick in my entire life because I lost it all and if it weren't for the fact that I'm a prolific social media user then you know I would have lost everything but thankfully you know I had that so it was just sort of like my god it was just like couldn't believe it and I was just like I'm now like literally back up everything as much as I can yeah um, I was gonna say um obviously the last um sorry just going back to um your writing um in the last 15 months you know we've in this uh in this new world let's just say um how has the how has the pandemic changed your dynamic for writing and also has it inspired anything like any new stories it it did inspire some new stories actually we um we we did the foolhardy and reckless thing of writing about covid um character cloven hoof we've broken out a kind of diary format in the past when Brexit happened, we, we did we did some stuff there. And, uh, and so we decided we would write um, a, a monthly release of the Isolation Chronicles, as we called them. And, and we also decided that we would just publish them as we wrote them and donate the money to the Trussell Trust. So, um, I mean, si- since then, we've compiled them into a novel. And, and so that Trussell Trust project has ended. But... I think we, we, we made about seven thousand pounds for the for the charity, so we were we were pretty pleased by that. And 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 I quite like the fact, without sounding at all pompous, the fact that I, I can look back now and it's like, oh my god, that really did happen like that. It it's moved so quickly that I'm really glad we wrote some of it down. It's like not a historical document, but at least it's a bit of a reminder of all that bog roll nonsense and you know, clapping and all that. <laughs> Do you know how how ridiculous that that the, the bog roll thing got? My ex, um, uh, she was she's Polish, and we um had we were getting some toilet paper. You know, we went to a shop because everybody was like was was like literally ramming all the shops. So she, she went off like you know miles away to try and see if we could get anything, uh, and she got you know she found some toilet paper and she went up to the um. She went up to the uh, what's it called the counter to pay for it and stuff, and um, turned around and within about five seconds, some guy had literally picked up the toilet paper and put it into his sort of thing. And she turned around, she went, "That that's my toilet paper," and he went, "No, it's not." And he said, "You don't deserve it. You know this isn't your country." And then he started having a go, and I was like, "If I had been there, <laughs> if I had been there, I would have gone absolutely mental." But I was just like, you know, she managed to get it back. Security came over. They actually looked at the security tape just to prove that the guy had taken this to- t- toilet paper. This guy literally kicked off about toilet paper. It was absolutely insane. Insane. There's a really good point there about uh, comedy because we we did that for. The Isolation Chronicles, uh, and, and that worked out okay. But beforehand, we had done Clover Hoops Diaries. Again, this is Satan living on Earth, and we thought, Brexit's coming up. Everyone's voted for Brexit. So I think it would have been probably about the autumn of 2018. And we said, we'll do a month-by-month diary, which we'll, 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 we'll release uh, each, each episode as it goes, based upon the things that have been related to Brexit. And, of course, Brexit will definitely happen within those 12 months, so then that'll be part of the climax of the book. <laughs> and, of course, we get we get round to, you know, January, 
February and we're going to go, Brexit's not actually happening. We voted for it. We know it's happening. You know, and, and, all, and you get the problem with comedy is when, and it seems to be a feature of our world from the last five years, when the real world is more stupid than comedy. Yeah. <laughs> so I think one of my favourite moments in Princess Clovenhoof's diary is where uh, Clovenhoof discovers that the transport secretary, Chris Grayling, has awarded ferry contracts to ferry companies that have no boats. <laughs> and, so, and he'll get involved in that. He'll, he'll, but you kind of go, it's so mad, no one would believe it, but it, but it is true. And it's these elements of things that are so utterly true. And you and, and the toilet roll is a good example, um, you know, and things about, you know, PPE and PPE shortages and who gets the contract. From, it's hard to not make it political, but the idea that, you know, everyone's scrabbling around for these bits of plastic, essentially, and someone's shoving banknotes in their pockets. Um, and that the real world is sufficiently daft that you, you, you've got to go an extra mile to get some actual comedy from it. Um, because, again, a couple of years before that, in a slightly similar way, after Donald Trump won the election, uh, 2016, 2017, uh, we decided to write a short, again, Satan meets Donald Trump uh, novella. <laughs> and anything that we could think that Donald Trump could have said or done, he'd done. He had done it. Um, and, and we just kind of really... You, you, the, it, it's, it's really tough for comedy writers when the world is just too daft. It, uh... The insane thing is, again, without sort of kind of go delving too deep into sort of politics and stuff, but it's like, it's just the fact that you've got people who are so sort of entrenched in that sort of view and, you know, you're looking at it and going, this is funny, right? This this, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely insane. You you, you know, people, you, you got to agree with me. And there's some people going, yeah, I don't see it. You know, I don't I understand. It's like, but seriously, it's not me. It's not just me being sort of, a knob head it's like that's ridiculous that that's insane really and they're just like nope nope we're we're fine with that the world is flat it's six thousand years old and an orange <laughs> tangerine is the president of the united states of america and you're just like what the what's going on <laughs> i sorry i spend most of my time arguing with creationists and flat earthers and stuff so they're they're generally wow. on my they're generally on my hit list and stuff coming from northern <laughs> ireland it's full of them so it's just like you know they're all over the place <laughs> I, I i think you know coming from northern ireland there, there's an interesting thought and i think we got this with our trump uh novella as well is actually you know there's plenty of issues whether it's brexit or trump or indeed everything in northern ireland that actually if you're going to approach that you know you're going to upset somebody um you know you can't you know or or even if you try and offend nobody someone's going to read something into it that you know you um people don't like popular writers necessarily being political is that true Heidi is that correct I don't know I, I think we we got we got more flack for the Trump novel than anything we'd written previously and um and, and yes whichever because we, we we tried to tread a fairly neutral line I mean it wasn't that neutral because we were pulling <laughs> at him but um, yeah we, um, we we had a few angry reviews about it yeah. You, you always yeah. get that sort of like, and I always see it we, when when something like that kicks up. He's just like, oh, I come here for comedy and I come here for war games or I come here for all the different things. But, you know, I don't want politics. And it's like, yeah, but it's happening. 
and you know it's <laughs> ridiculous and you should really it's like you know the epitome of it was the black My- lives matters thing and people were going oh i don't want to hear about black lives matter um because you know this isn't what i'm here for i'm here for warhammer 40,000 now or i'm here for such and it's just like but that's a thing it's important and it should be mentioned and it yeah, just yeah. I remember when we kind of chose to follow through with Black Lives Matter and do Blackout Tuesday and said, no, we, you know, we have Geek Pride has been generally apolitical. You know, we have no kind of as a entity have no pl- particular p- uh, political affiliation. You know, it's it, this is geeky and fun, but sometimes you have to make a stand. And we said, okay, no, we Black Lives Matter. This is correct, and we will stand with that. Yeah. And we got some, you know, most of the people were, yes, thank you for doing that and really supportive of us. Others went, well, I come here for Geek, not Black Lives Matter. And yeah, some people left as well. Bye. Yeah, yeah, that was amusing. That was the comments and stuff. It was just like, seriously, it was just like, it's like, wow. Wow. And I actually felt bad for them because they were getting lunged on by everybody else. But I was just like, you just, that's the one thing that annoys me. It doesn't annoy me. What gets me is like, when people just jump on other people, even if they're wrong, and it's just like, you're just like, you're kind of being the, as bad as they are sometimes, mm-hmm. so you just got to sort of leave it. But yeah, it was madness. Pure madness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, going back onto the writing, hard right, so to speak, um, why do you always kind of embed comedy in your writing, regardless of genre? Why is, what is it about the comedy that kind of keeps bringing you back, and coming back in your stories? I think part of it's for ourselves because we like writing comedy and it's it's kind of where our our, our writing preferences intersect very heavily. Um, but also now now we've got a readership, um, they they expect the funny and um, and we don't have to stray too far into seriousness and they 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 go yeah yeah it's not quite as funny though is it? Um, so yes it's 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 an expectation now but. I don't think we have a problem with that because we both really like making each other laugh as well as uh, ourselves. Heidi, that definitely explains their essential being held hostage by our readers there and forced to churn out stuff that they want us to uh, to write. And I think I think there's it. One of the reasons why we write comedy as well is um, that you know it it, it creates a, a, a lightness that actually gives us freedom. That in fact we can you know we can flex and be a bit more silly about things. And I think also as comedy writers, because comedy it's it's probably the worst genre to pick because we often have this discussion, right? It's like, okay, so for instance, you know, you go and see a science fiction movie or a fantasy movie or a horror movie, and you didn't like it, and you kind of go, meh. You see a comedy and you didn't laugh, your response is usually one of hatred. If, if, we're, if we're expected to find something funny, but we don't, we it actually generates a really unbelievably negative response in people. So actually, comedy is one of those things that either it, this is why I'd I never be a stand-up comedian because it's horrible. You know, there you are on stage, and basically it's laugh or die. Uh, you wouldn't have that experience with you know a singer or or a traditional play where basically you know you either entertain them or they're mildly bored. A comedy you have to win every time you have to succeed um and and i think you know you know comedy is not a good choice in that sense uh, of something to write um oh heidi has vanished heidi has vanished uh, 
She's disappeared <laughs> into the ether. Oh, driven her away. That's really what's going on there. Um, so when we find out this is part of the act, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's the thing I was going to say about comedy is that, you know, we never, we well, if you're set out to be funny, but you never know if you yourself are funny, you know. In fact, it's probably more true that most of us think we're funny when we're not. And I'm putting myself in that category. Trust me, my children do not think I'm funny. Um, so we happen to write stuff together and then you know, people did like it, and we kind of go, "Oh, people like this." They actually did laugh a bit, so you know that that becomes uh, you know a, a you know a, a bonus there. She's back. She's oh. back. I'll, I'll stop talking about her now. <laughs> I was I was I was saying, Heidi, this notion that um, that uh, we didn't know that we were funny. You know, and I still don't know that we're funny. We just write stuff, and then some people happen to like it. You know, it's it's pure chance. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is there any particular subject of humour that you can stay away from? Any particular kind of topic that you say, nope, I'm not going to humorise that. One of the things that. Um... <laughs> Animals. I think I think we, um, we 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 have strong feelings about animals because readers have strong feelings about animals. So we we quite often feature animals. And Ian tells me off for this every time I bring an intelligent dog into a story. He he yeah, no more intelligent dog. Um, but what we can't do is harm animals. You know we we can we can have a little bit of you know hamsters falling off desks or stuff. But but. <laughs> can't do harm to animals because that would be very um <laughs> it, it's weird you can mur murder humans uh with with gay abandon but you cannot harm animals yeah agreed you agreed um, i come from a very yeah. i'm a very hard line sort of kind of you know well i, I, I say that I'm, I'm not a vegetarian i'm just like i love i love my dog and i love my cat i'm you know i'm a, i've come from families who own uh who are both grandfathers were, were vets, so I've had pets galore as I grew up and stuff, and I have very, very, very strong feelings about my animals and stuff, especially my dog. You know, I, I, I left a girlfriend because she made me choose between a dog and her. <laughs> and I, and I, well, and I, that was a wrong yeah, conclusion, to be fair. Yeah, so the, the dog's still here. Oh. So... We... <laughs> <laughs> I always remember we did a workshop in Leicester, you know, a writing workshop, and and we had a comment from a writer who was part of the workshop, um, and it was a variant on, oh, you can't say anything these days, you know, anything you do say, you know, a, a rather old-fashioned attitude, you know, whether that was about um, sexuality or race or ethnicity, that kind of notion of, oh, you just can't say what you want to say anymore, you can't say what you like. And of course, actually, I think there is an element to say that there is no area where, um, you know, you can't do comedy. Um, some areas are obviously a lot trickier than others. You know, there are things that, you know, we personally find unfunny and so we won't put in books. But actually, comedy can tackle any number of issues. It's about how you do it. Um, and I think it's the thing I, I saw, by pure chance, I don't have them in my pocket, I saw a, a quote from Terry Pratchett on the social media today, the idea that, you know, um, satire is laughing at authority, you know, but if the person you're laughing at is hurting, then it's not satire, it's bullying. 
And actually, I think when you're doing comedy, the thing you need to think of is, what are we laughing at here? And actually, are we punching up or punching down? And I think that's the one thing, you know, comedy always has to punch up, you know, the plucky underdog, you know, uh, beating or making fun of the uh, sort of like, you know, the, 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 the authority figures. That, that, that's always the, the freedom of comedy issue. Um, I believe that was like the reason why Norman Wisdom was one of the few film stars allowed to have his films showed in Albania, uh, because he always played the plucky underdog fighting against authority, you know, and that, that appealed to the Albanian sensibility during the Cold War. I think. Yeah, I've got, got a, I've got a friend uh, who uh, his wife's Russian, and he um, he used to teach English in Russian, and um, and he was saying that. And that's actually, to be honest, I saw some documentaries about it as well. So it's like, you know, they're very, Russia, obviously, Putin-led Russia is you can't say anything against the regime because, you know, it's just like you're going to get disappeared. But apart, you know, comedy-wise, you can do whatever you want. And they, they literally have a huge comedy scene, taking the piss out of the Kremlin, taking the piss out of Putin and stuff like that. And it's acceptable because it's comedy. And it's, you know, it, it it's it's got a different sort of air about it. You know, you can sit there and, and do it and... It's sort of accepted. Yeah, I, I think there's a, there's also an interesting philosophical. I know I end up highly know about this conversation before. Is that comedy? I, I'm stories full stop, but but comedy in particular doesn't change the world. You know, in that, for instance, when you're watching uh, How I Got News for You, and they're mocking the government, that we're not. They're not actually winning over the government. But what they're probably doing, uh, unconsciously is making us feel happy about someone mocking the government and therefore actually we are satisfied um and then actually with with, with comedy you know you, you you may be satirizing stuff but actually it's not necessarily changing opinion so actually the God, sounds so bloody miserable the powers <laughs> that be comedy to exist because actually it gives the people that freedom within a safe way that sounds so dark here. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think it's like that. It's basically saying that, you know, with um, satire, it's a way of kind of having a moan about something, where, but you're not actually attacking someone. So, yeah, I think that's quite a good point. Bet, better to have a laugh at man, Matt Hancock than, you know, grab your torch and pitchfork <laughs> and, you know, go around to his constituency office. It's, you know, oh, that, that, that guy. Oh, my God, man. It's just. <laughs> Wow. Uh, have you, know what, yeah, have you seen anything like Jonathan Pye? Have you been watching Jonathan Pye at all? Yeah. yeah his latest video. Uh, I'm just going nodding. Yes, this is funny because you are so rage-filled and indignant about it, and you're absolutely spot on. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Yeah, I, I do like uh, I, I do like him. He's uh, he's He's... He's pretty brutal. Um, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I, I don't, I, you know, he can't be a bit too over the top sometimes, but you can mm. tell it's obviously his character and stuff, so it's still amusing. But yeah, um, yeah, that was pretty bang on. <laughs> <laughs> do you find, um, back sort of kind of, back to the sort of kind of writing side of things, uh, do you find it's easier to sort of write because there's two of you so you don't have that sort of mental block because somebody, you know, Heidi can take off, uh, take up from when you're stuck or vice versa, uh, you can take off when she's stuck. Is it is it easier being a Jew? I would say so. I would definitely say so because um, 
we don't often get stuck, but we sometimes get um, hiccups where we need input. So there's always input because there's two of you. And, and the, um, the value for comedy as well is, is how much you can stretch an idea because for comedy, you've got to stretch ideas. You know, invariably the first version of a joke that you think of is not as funny as the second version, you know, the, the, the stretched version of the joke that, that you will uh, eventually arrive at. So it, it is helpful in, uh, in, in ways. We don't- It's like children playing a prank, egging each other on. That's what a, a lot of egging each other on is kind of, you know, so kind of go, what, what, what do you think of that? And go, oh yeah, yeah, do more of that, do more of that. So that, that that's really helpful. And I think, you know, we were talking about like Dropbox and file sharing. One of the things that has definitely historically helped us is, you know, when a little alert pops up and goes, Heidi has changed chapter one document. And you go, oh, she's written something. I go have a look. Oh, I best write my bit. And it, it was, I think it's more so in the early days, but it was quite a competitive process to kind of try and, you know, get ahead of the other one, you know, add, you know, add stuff that the other one hadn't put in there. So I, I think in that sense, it works well. But I mean, I would emphasize what, what Heidi said, that we happen to have a similar work ethic, same kind of goals in mind. Um, and therefore that has worked. Because it's one of those things, um, you know, I, I, mean, I, I don't know if you agree, but that kind of adage that, you know, never lend money to friends, never buy, you know, a car off a mate, you know, because mixing business and pleasure never really works kind of thing. Um, I think, you know, actually when you decide to do something meaningful and formal with somebody, you know, who, who, is, who is a friend or whatever, then, you know, it can go horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, have you ever been tempted to use like um, docu um, docu document writing software such as Scrivener or Page 4? Some of our friends swear by Scrivener. But yeah. We, um, we, we, we have, we're quite fond of the low tech. I say low tech. We're quite fond of the basicness of Word um, because certainly, I mean, when it comes to formatting, the books for publication. Um, I'm 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 a little bit wary of things that stuff it with with you know um, other invisible characters or, or nonsense like that. So we 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 always strip it back to plain text anyway. Um, so so no, I I haven't been tempted to do that. I don't know about you, Ian. No, not really. No, because I, I I am that control freak, and I like to see very clearly what I'm doing. I mean, because you've got all these opportunities to do different things. I think, for instance, stuff like Scrivener is a really good example. I really do like that. Um, but there's lots of different approaches, right? A friend of ours, who I won't mention because I don't want to, you know, um, poke at other people's methods. She's taken recently to dictating her novels ahead of the lot. Wow. And in fact, to the extent that she works with a plot, and obviously dictation is nothing new. But actually, you know, working with a plot outline and then sitting there with a you know the, the computer as it were as the dictaphone recording it and obviously you could put it through you know a dictation software but i think it gets emailed overnight to a to a typist in australia who the next day you know sends back you know seven thousand words of you know book and i think she's found that as a method in terms of producing uh quality text at enormous speed has worked very well for her so you know I think actually it's all about finding a system that works for you. Because also when it comes to things like writing, um, as with any kind of creative endeavor, you know, how fast your hands move 
how fast your brain moves, it's, it's two different speeds necessarily, you know. I don't know if you bang out 5,000 words in a day if she, you know, if, if pressure's put to her. Whereas, you know, after about 1,000 words, you know, the um, trade unionist in my brain just kind of start getting out their placard and kind of get that <laughs> <laughs> I could think of anything worse than dictating, uh, like because I, I work for uh, I've worked for a few solicitors and I work for a solicitor now, and thankfully I don't have to do sort of anything like that anymore. But they used to have dictation where you would dictate your files, and like my dyslexic brain was just like, yeah, I can't do this. I I need to type it out and see it, and then sort of read it about a million times before sending it off. I can, you know, I could barely speak as it is now, let alone dictate what's going on in my head. I was just saying I, I, I really like Dragon. I think it, it works incredibly well, but it's like Ian said, it's how fast your your brain works. Because for, for composing fiction, um, you know, Dragon's not that interested in uh so um if I've got something and I know exactly how it needs to go down, then then I'm, I'm happy to dictate it. But um it is a bit of a distraction when you haven't got it all lined up. Well, I remember um, Isaac Asimov, he went through a phase, obviously we're now talking 60, 70 years ago, uh, of, of dictating his novels. He would dictate them into a tape recorder, you know, in one room, and then he'd give them to his wife in another room uh, to type up. And, and I think she complained that, you know, she didn't know how to transcribe his wordless grunting when his characters were having arguments. You know, it's that sort of, you know, how, how do you, um, you know... <laughs> Sorry, Peter, you were going to say something there. Sorry. No, basically, I, I was chatting with Dana Fredsty uh, a couple of a couple of days ago, and she said, like, no, she would transcribe something that, to write. So she would record it to write, and then she'd be listening back to the next day for, and trying to read through what, what Dragon had transcribed. And going, what does that mean? Why did? And it, it was kind of ran, make up random words, and you're going. Nope, that's not what I said. I'm pretty certain I didn't say the dosh, the uh, mop met the bucket. <laughs> what did I really mean? <laughs> so I meant, I meant to the exact like when you're typing yourself, you you type what you mean rather than Dragon saying, "Well, I think you meant that." Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, um, cause I I use a fair bit of transcription software in, in my um job as a journalist, and there's a few times, especially when with strong accents, it just comes up with going, "Nope, can't do that." If someone's got a very strong Welsh or very uh, broad Yorkshire or Scottish accent, it just yeah, it dies. It just kills over and goes, "Nope, can't cope." <laughs> It made me laugh today because I, I actually did, um, I, I used Dragon um, earlier for something I was just doing, um, it, it's a planning document that I haven't yet saved, so Ian hasn't seen it, and I, I used the word Reagan, uh, and it's it's transcribed it as Reagan, as in the president. <laughs> alter the meaning of a sentence. Amazing. Oh, I sound like the idea of a story set in the future where the characters break out their Reagans, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, there could be a President Ray Gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ray Gun. That's happening. Sorry. President Ray Gun's uh, Star Wars project. It's yeah, that's weird. It's another right way to happen. I just like the idea that weapons are being named after presidents. That'd be pretty good. Oh yeah. yeah. The Trump. That'd be the most yeah. useless gun ever. Yes, uh, that'd be um, I, that'd be obviously I, a smoke I, I, grenade, wouldn't it? 
competition, you know, is, is always entertaining, you know. Um, I, I, I think that would be good, yes. I mean, actually, it's that thing I saw, because I saw the thing this week where they were, t- they were doing the shock testing on the aircraft, the American aircraft carrier. They were dropping, I think it was 400,000 pounds of explosives next next to the aircraft carrier to see how well it's and it was it's it was the USS Gerald Ford and I thought to myself that's not a very exciting precedent something Gerald Ford did you know it's a bit tricky that one you know so um, I don't know if the sailors aboard the Gerald Ford are equally excited but that's the name of their boat you know um, yeah yeah, what was it? What is it? He couldn't stand up and chew bubblegum at the same time. I think they said, or something like that. What was it? There was there was some like. Apparently, he was a very good president. He was just you know, just a bit sort of you know dry. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, well, one thing that amused me this week is apparently no one's willing to publish Donald Trump's presidential memoirs. <laughs> the only president that has never kind of had a book deal is Trump. I just find that an absolute howl. I'm surprised that one of the crazies from sort of, uh, one of the crazies... It's going to self-publish. It's going to be self-published by by, um, some dude in, um, yeah, wherever. (laughs) And it's just going to be horrendous. <laughs> it will, yeah, because the thing is, I'd buy it. I'd buy it just so I, I could just read the crazy and stuff. So, <laughs> And he'd think that's popularity, but it's not. It's just like, this dude is freaking crazy. <laughs> it, it's like, like all the journalists who will buy it just so they can explain why it's so bad. You know, it's... Um, I, I think, uh, no, you know, it's unavoidably going to be a bestseller. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I remember well, th- this episode of uh, Spooks, where um, there was this kind of former politician that had published his shocking memoirs, uh, was rather was going to, and was going to reveal all the secrets, and basically the MI5 must get hold of a, of a pre-published copy, and we kind of, right, we've got a day to read through this, everyone sit down, read it, and everyone's just going, page 42! Page 69. Page 115. And then Edwards went, Page 160. <laughs> and I, I, can, I can imagine it's been a bit lot like that. <laughs> Just worse. But yeah. Um, actually, when, when, uh, I think the last time we met, um, we were talking, you were t- we ended up talking about LARP. Oh, he's. We we um that was when we were writing the Coven Hoof's diary series. Okay. Because we wanted to send one of the characters into the world of LARPing. And um and, and this is a very non-geek character, um, Neris. She she's um her, her main function in the story is to is to explore the world of uh, manhunting in in the, the voracious female manhunter kind of way. It's, it's, it's her hobby. <laughs> so she, do you remember we, we actually asked you whether it's possible to do an erotic LARP? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it? And, is it? Is it possible? Um, it's not impossible, but you need <laughs> a lot of discussion beforehand and several content warnings and highlighting and like... <laughs> 
Yeah, a lot of agreement in advance. But I think I think we, we did end up chatting about the idea that sort of like did some laughing based on things like uh, Vampire the Masquerade, where it's more of a social laugh yeah. rather than my my limited experience of it, which is running around a wood with a foam sword. Um, that you know that actually a social laugh. Um, and I think one of the things I remember, and I might be totally misquoting you here, but you've got this idea that you know if you're doing social interactions in a role playing sense, and trying to work out you know. Who, who wins and who doesn't, you know, where, where the success lies. But essentially, it boils down to perhaps the equivalent of, you know, rock, paper, scissors sort of thing. You know, I have charged you with scissors, you know. Um, I'm sure that no one does that. But it is the sense of how those things overlap. And, of course, then you get into the rather potentially scary world of LARPing bleeding into real life. You do a LARP. You know, but essentially that you're always playing it, and I think I think there's a there's a whole range of things there. So we wanted to make we wanted to have a bit of fun with that from a perspective of how we would get um, sort of like people who are effectively not geeky, not into that kind of thing, how to get a character like that in into that kind of into that kind of realm. Um, and I think I think that you know we enjoyed that we enjoyed it very much. Um, Brexit still didn't happen in time for that chapter, but you know we still done them. Uh, yeah. Was I don't remind you you're talking about uh, rock paper scissors and LARP? Uh, like when I was in university, um, there was a group of sort of. I had this sort of group of war gamers. Like I was going through my sort of like I'm cool. I'm I'm not into sort of this sort of thing, but the, like the geeky side of me was. So my mates would take the piss out of me because I was into war gaming and things like that. So I would try and hide it from them. So I had this little sort of group of guys who they did LARP and they it must have been Vampire the Masquerade, but they did it and they they all sort of gathered in the room. They all dressed up and they yeah. did rock paper scissors for yeah you're talking of the laws by night um system for for the world of darkness lab specifically like mostly vampire the basket but there's also werewolf the god what's the name of it werewolf the yeah apocalypse and maze the ascension yeah because i remember but yeah i remember talking to them about it i said so how does it how does it work how do you sort of you know do you roll dice what are you doing it's like no we just it's rock paper scissors and i was just yeah. like all right okay that's cool and uh well you know i, well, I thought in in there i was like, that's cool i'm amazing like, that's so sad man I said, yeah that's totally sad and i was just like oh, i'll have a good go with that <laughs> It's actually it was actually a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to do it, um, especially when you, especially when everyone's like in character and you kind of politicking, backstabbing against each other. Um, but when you're running around a bus station at night and yeah, you're trying to do rock paper scissors in between in between uh, actions, you do feel a bit of a pillock. <laughs> People looking at you thinking, "What the hell are they doing?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's an interesting thing though about about uh, being geeky because we, we we use the word geek to think about certain kind of things you know in life um whether that is role playing or you know fantasy or certain types of film or certain types of games whereas in fact actually everybody's a geek in their own way you know yeah, yeah. 100% you know currently there there are hundreds of thousands of men who are currently being very geeky Whilst they're indulging in their geek hobby of watching the yes, football, yes, 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 yes. There's quite a number of them cosplaying in the shirts, <laughs> you know, um, and you know it, it's the same thing. It's a fascination with a specific thing, with the numbers and the stats, and having a chat about it with your mates and being on the forums. And I think you know it's actually because I know behind us again, I want to speak, 
but for instance you know when it comes to things like sewing and crafting and that element of geekiness which we don't usually call it that but that's what it is isn't it Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's like I remember, right? And it's it's funny you brought up the football thing because in one of my old jobs, um, they had, like pretty much actually to be honest, every job I've had, there's been a fantasy football league there. They've always had a fantasy football league, and um, this job, they're all sort of like you know, it's it was in Bolton. They're all northern lads and stuff. You know, it's talking they talk about football all the time. You know, I get grief for coming in five minutes late, but they'd sit there and talk for half an hour about football and stuff like that and they were like going on doing their fantasy football league and stuff like that and then one of them turns around and says what are you doing tonight and I was like oh I'm playing fantasy football and I went really you're playing fantasy football I said yeah yeah I'm going to Stockport we're going to play fantasy football I've got I've got I've got an orc team and I've got a human team and uh you know I'm, I'm you know but he says oh that's that's not the same thing I said it is the same thing I said so let, let, let's break this down it's like I buy players you buy players I trade players you trade players you know I win you know I get points of my if my characters it's exactly the same thing it's just you just don't want to accept that saying it's like oh you're a nerd blah 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 it's like you're nerds you're all a bunch of nerds so every time they start Started talking about football and stuff i go nerds it's like you're a bunch of nerds <laughs> <laughs> like shut up <laughs> well, there's, uh, neil, whatever. there's neil stevenson who actually uh, gave this talk once about we, that's it we're all geeks now and it's absolutely spot on be it like you know, we're all just passionate about a certain subject yeah be it war gaming fantasy tech privacy football train spotting what have you but we are all geeks now. Yeah. Well, my boss will refute that. My, my boss, uh, he's one of the partners in our, our, our law firm. He's a great guy, but... And he he's won all the books that I get. Like he's 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 so voracious, and he's like super into his Marvel. He's super into sort of like fantasy books and sci-fi and things like that. And he's always giving me sort of recommendations and stuff. And but as soon as I call him a nurse, I'm I'm not a geek, and it's like you totally are. And every time I have, he's sitting there. These guys are, but I'm I'm talking to one of the tech guys in Canada, and he's like, oh, they're a bunch of nerds, and I was just like. He's a closet case. He just hasn't accepted it yet. He's definitely a nerd. And he's just like, I'm not a nerd. You are. You are. <laughs> and if you're listening to this, Damien, you are. <laughs> does, does he read the Warhammer 40,000 books? No, you know, I, I'm trying to get him to listen to Horace. I, I, I've basically, we've got this sort of thing where he's he's given me a load of sort of books to sort of listen to and audio books and stuff. So I'm currently going through The Blade Itself um, by Abercrombie oh, yeah. at the minute. Um, and and there's a load of other ones he's given me um to listen to and i've and i've listened to him i said right you're going to listen to the horace heresy series now and he's just like oh i said yes you're gonna do it there's 55 books actually i think there's more than that now because they've got the need to teach a terror once it's like you're gonna you're gonna le- read at least the first one every single page of it you're gonna and you're gonna come back to me and tell me it's bad and you're not going to be able to because it's awesome and he's just like, oh, I'll give it my college try. And I'll say, well, we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> what are you reading at the moment, guys? I am reading the most recent book from Queeve McDonnell, who he, he's a comedy writer, a very successful one, actually. Um, he writes crime comedy. And I cannot remember the title of the most recent book, which is really bad. Because I read it on the Kindle and I don't always, you know, see it when I pick it up. Um, but he's a great writer. Very funny. The title. Sins in the title. Something sins. Dead man sins. Yeah, I think you're right. Dead man sins. Mm-hmm. Is he also wrote that um, which we both read recently? 
one about the uh, Manchester newspaper investigating things that go bump in the night. It, that, that was a nice book as well. Uh, nice to be comedy. Um, I, 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 well, I, I very much moved on to audiobooks of late. Clearly, um, yeah. reached that age now, you know, where if I pick a book to read, pick up a book to read when I go to bed at night, I just it falls on my face as I fall asleep, sort of thing. That's all that ever happened. So, all, yeah. audiobooks is the way forward for me. Um, yeah, and I'm currently listening to um, uh, The Testament of Gideon Mack. Uh, I can't remember the name of the author now, um, which. Uh, I don't always seek out fiction about the devil. We're not we're not obviously obsessed, but it's about a uh, Scottish Scottish Presbyterian minister who uh, gets rescued from the river by the devil, uh, and it's it's it, 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 it's a dialogue between those two. So I'm enjoying that one at the moment because um, I'm I'm not a very speedy reader. I've got to say, cause how many books? I mean, how much do you read, Heidi? Because I don't know how many books I read each year. Um, it dep- I, I, I dip into things, but um, in terms of novels, I read, I don't know, one every 10 days, something like that. Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> I used to read that fast. I, I, then, yeah. then I had children. The, the, the quickest I've ever read a series of books was when Game of, when, with Game of Thrones, and they, I knew they were going to film it in Northern Ireland, and I'd not read any of them. And there was like the just Dance of Dragons had just come out, and I read five of those in about a month, just under a month. I literally just hammered them when I was on holiday and stuff. And that's the fastest I've ever read. But other than that, you know, I'm a pretty slow reader. I like reading, but I'm a pretty slow reader. That's why the audiobooks audiobooks work really well for me because I can listen to them when I'm walking the dog. I can listen to them when I walk around. So all my sort of downtime where I'm not doing anything else, I can sort of put it on, and that makes me feel like I'm getting through them and stuff. Like really as, as writers, um, there, there's uh, readers out there. I mean, how fast do can I, some of the readers out there read books, Heidi? How many do they go through in a year? It's a crazy number, isn't it? There's there's plenty of people who will whack through a novel in a day, yeah. Well, they'll not do anything else, to be fair. <laughs> My dad was pretty prolific. You know, he would read loads, absolutely, like, just books and pawn books. Like, he'd bring, like, 23 books or something on holiday with him, and he'd get through most of them and stuff, just because that's it. He'd be glued to the books and stuff. But I can't read that fast. One, because, again, dyslexia, so I have to read things over again, because I'm like, that makes no sense, and I'm just having to sort of reread stuff. But, um, yeah, the audio, the audio books is a big save for me. Talking about audiobooks, is that something you guys do? Do you have any of your your works in audio? You do? Yes, we've um I think all of our all of our series books now are, are recorded in audio. Um we've used two narrators. The the most um the, the, the most prolific of those is Matthew Lloyd Davis. He uh he, he does an amazing job and he brings actually a following with him. He's he's brought us more fans which is just marvelous it's it's true there's a guy called jonathan keeble uh who i love like so basically anything that he narrates like he does a lot of the warhammer books and stuff but he does sort of history stuff as well i i think he's amazing so like if jonathan keeble does it i'm there i go with him and to sort of i read listen to that it's very important though with sort of kind of the audiobooks is um i can't oh it's gonna really do my head in um pile what was the name of the uh the author science fiction author we had on pete uh oh, this is gonna i'm gonna have to i'm gonna check my books now just um kate no 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 let me just I'm which gonna, author um oh, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna get it up now here. I'll 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 get the things out here. Where is it? It is Oh yeah, sorry, Garth Pyle. Garth Pyle, yeah. Garth Pyle. Oh Garth Pyle. Yeah, so I was like, you know, he was talking about his books. I didn't have them, so I went out and got the audiobooks and I was like, brilliant, I'll give these a go. And the the narration's so bad. It's just like, you know, I just you know, I'm I'm going to have to buy because I want to read them. I'm going to have to buy the books, but I I bought the audiobooks. Uh, I was actually tempted to tell him. I was like, "The man, I don't know what you for if anybody's giving any feedback on this." But I started listening to the the audio in this book, and I was just like, it was robotic American sort of, you know, the way when they everything's a question, everything's like a question at the end, and it was really doing my head in. I was just like, I can't get through this. It, it's kill, it was completely killing it for me. Makes a huge difference. I mean, again, we were very lucky. We were working with Matt Davis, you know, right? I think he's an actor, you know, and he, and he and he puts himself into these roles and he creates. And sometimes he breathes life into characters in such a way that we kind of go, oh, wow, that minor character. We wish we'd written more for them, you know, some of them, you know. I think there's one he did, you know, Paul Clover who put Hell's a Pop in. There's a demon character in Hell, Podshift, who's like a, a foreman demon. He's got like a thousand ears. He's got a pencil behind every one of them, you know. All right, mate, you know, let's take a look at this, you know. All right, we've got some cowboys in here. And all that kind of stuff. And he was just, he was laying into the characters. It was fantastic. It was absolutely wonderful. But there's things that continue off. Because when he recorded the first of our Rod Jobs books, which is about paranormal sort of investigators in Birmingham, there were some uh, fishmen, uh, like like the deep ones from H.P. Lovecraft. And he laid them down with the most horrifically thick, brummy accents. Um, which weren't brummy accents, they were they were black country accents. And I mean, it, it, it worked up these characters wonderfully, and I just kind of go, I don't think we can have a whole book of listening to these accents. So he did go back and re-record them and made them sort of a bit more like Cockney White Boys kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, was, you know, good narration really brings something to life. It really yep. does. Agreed. Um, and poor narration, which is which is a shame for the authors, can really you know do a disservice to things so we're really pleased that we got you know particularly in matthew uh a narrator who, who people just you know love just love just listen to his voice they really do yeah there's um what is it there's um have you ever heard of the red rising trilogy um he's actually on book five uh something pierce what's his what's the first guy's Pierce? uh red rising um uh, who wrote Red Rising? Ah, Pierce Brown. Yeah, Pierce Brown. Um, his his audiobooks, like again, something my boss sort of got me onto, and it's basically about it. It it it's meant to be like it's basically about workers on Mars, and there's different there's different. If you've not heard about it, it's like different casts and stuff like this, and these different casts uh, in in sort of in the in the future, uh, and Red is basically like one of the lower working classes and stuff and they're basically irish you know there's actually an inference within it that they you know their ancestor come from ireland so the guy narrates it in a really broad irish accent at the start and for me who's literally <laughs> all the books i listen to it's sort of like you know it's it's english sort of like you know or even sort of you know maybe a more polite sort of american but not this broad irish accent this biggity bong irish accent and for the first sort of part of it, I was like, I am not enjoying this because this Irish accent is really doing my melt in. It's just like, I appreciate that's how some of them makes, might sound, but it's just like, I'm just not used to it. I'm not getting to it. But it sort of changes and progresses as the story goes on. It's like, and I got used to it. And I was like, ah, oh, and it sort of, sort of kicks in. So I give it time. 
I was trying to do the same thing with the Gareth Powell sort of narrate the the book, one of his books, but you know, it it wasn't it it wasn't it wasn't working for me, so I had to stop. I was like, I'll buy the books, I'll just read them instead because the narration's killing it for me. I can't I can't carry on. Attack Macaque, Gareth Powell. Say it again. Akak Macaque, Gareth Powell. Yeah. Yes. Yes. His books are great. What a shame to have bad audio. Yeah. Yeah, it's just it's I it's you know what it is it's like it, what is it? It's the one. Um, what's the? Let's get the the uh, the embers of war. So it's this embers of war one that we were just talking about. It sounds really, really, really good. And we were talking to him, and I was like, right, brilliant, you've sold me. I'm gonna get it. And because it's like audiobook, and it's just the audio, and it, there is uh, there's different narrators in it, I think, but the first one is this very robotic, and I thought it was like, okay, because it's in the future, maybe it is meant to be like an AI or something sort of talking, but it it was just, car- it carried on. There was a bit of a change, and then it went back to this sort of kind of really sort of AI with everything being a question mark at the end, and it was just like, I was like, I hate this, I hate this, and all I was thinking was this, this accent is really doing my head in, and I just cannot, I cannot focus on the story, because she's just making it so bad for me, um, and I just, I couldn't carry on, so I was just like, right, I'm just gonna have to buy, I'm just gonna have to buy the books instead, because I, I can't, I can't deal with the audio. <laughs> Your mileage may vary type things, because I, I hang around quite a few audiobook listener groups and audiobook recorder and narrator groups on Facebook, mainly because then you can hear what kind of like, you know, the two sides of the fence are. And you find amongst the listeners, they'll, you know, they'll say things like, can I recommend a book? Uh, the narrator must be male, English, and, you know, and, and people have these very specific ideas of what kind of sound voice they want to tell the, the stories to them. You know, people... Uh, reject either female narrators or male narrators, and that they like certain accents and not others. You know, um, you know, audiobook listeners who you know, want to hear an English accent but not Scottish and not Welsh, and not Irish. And I think we we all have these kind of inbuilt responses to certain types of voices, um, and, and it's kind of interesting in that sense. Because I, I listened to an audiobook recently. I can't remember which one it was specifically, um, but it was an American narrator. And there's something about the American accent, which is lovely, but it always seems very, very sincere. (laughs) You know, we sound like we're basically, we're lying to you all the time. You know, we're basically, we're trying to, whereas the American accent has a level of sincerity to it, which actually, you know, before, before I got into listening to the story, had kind of, kind of, no, no, it was too earnest for me. Um, so it's our response to different kind of accents that you know what what one person likes another hates it, it changes person to person definitely. Yeah, it was like um, I sort of like I I hate when like Romans and history programs are played by Americans and stuff. It's just like I appreciate the, the Romans weren't English either, but it was just like you know that's sort of kind of the cultural norm. You accept sort of Romans being sort of kind of posh, and so whenever you get like films like um I can't remember Eagle or something where it's literally they're American. And you're just like that sounds super weird, and I don't know if I like that at all. One of the, there was one. <laughs> have you ever seen the film Hannibal with um uh f- f- Colin? Oh, what's the what's the name of the Irish actor? Farrell, Farrell, ah, Sergeant. Colin Farrell. Yeah, Colin Farrell. Yeah, Colin Farrell. Yeah, uh, and it, oh my god, and he does an Irish accent. He does the, an Irish accent. He's been Alexander the Great, and he does an Irish accent, and. It, 
and I'm not sure if he does why he does that. But it's like it's got Val Kilmer in it, and Val Kilmer's like, "Well, he's doing an Irish accent. I'll do an Irish accent as well." And he's meant to be Philip Macedon, and I'm just like, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" I would sooner have I would sooner have subtitles and a, you know some sort of like ancient Greek being spoken than this. And I was just like, "Oh man, this is horrible," and I couldn't watch it. It's the only film I've walked out of. <laughs> I think my favorite would have to be because pure chameleon of acting would be Sean Connery because you know. When he's playing a Russian submarine commander, you know, it's Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah. when, he, when he's playing you know, a Spanish immortal in Highland, a Spanish immortal. No, he's, he's called the Spaniard. I think he's meant to be Egyptian. It's still Sean bloody Connery, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just, yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. But you have, that, you have that weird sense that actually we have these cultural expectations. You know, like, like we want our Romans to speak in English accent. It's like, you know, you mentioned Game of Thrones earlier. Why is it that all the Starks are essentially from Rotherham? No. Yeah. Or, you know, hey, old lass. But we, 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 load, we load fantasy worlds with our own cultural baggage. You know, it's bizarre that we do it. And we don't think anything's wrong with it. Someone points out to us, you know, they're literally, you know, Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark, they're, you know, they're from Sheffield, aren't they, basically? You yeah, know, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, why? It's, but it's the thing. I was thinking it would be weird though if they came out and they had sort of I don't know French accents or or German accents. You'd be like, whoa, what are you, what are you doing? What is this? What is this? Well, I was watching this um, like Hong Kong action film, um, oh, Hard Boiled, starring Chai Yun Fat. Oh yeah, it's a good film. But incredible, you know, literally incredible, um, violent action film. But I was watching, rather than the subtitles, I was watching the dubbed version. Oh, mate. And they dubbed Italian fat with a broad Cockney accent. Yeah, it's bad. And it was just, okay, that's the side of Italian fat I thought I would never, ever see. And I do not want to see. Yeah. I... Because it was just took me out of it completely i won't do dubs uh, i would sooner yeah. just read i would sooner read subtitles than and the dubbing because oh, yeah. dubbing's just uh, so me, bad do you know what i do but this was an ancient vh vhs tape all right and it was only just <laughs> it was just dubbed so i was like damn it it's like uh, yeah Go on. it's like all the um the early the early jackie chan stuff as well and it's like it's all sort of highly what i was thinking yeah, all highly dubbed. Like one of my, my one of my mates, sort of uh, from back in school, and he, he he was Chinese, and he always had all these films from Hong Kong and stuff, and it was just like you know all these really sort of uh, Americanized dubbed over sort of um, Hong Kong kung fu films and stuff, and I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, yeah, I think I prefer just to have the one subtitles. Of my, right. I was gonna say one of my favorite. Sorry, because in the late 80s, yeah. I, I think the really sheer pleasure of Jackie Chan films and half the fun was the really, really poor dubbing. Yeah. And it, just, it elevated them to grand comedy. I was going to say that one of my favourite bits of dubbing, it's not for the, um, it's not that it was a different um, like country that made the film. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is one of my favourite actors. But if you ever watch Hercules in New York, they dub him over with such a terrible voice actor. It's jarring. It's so bad to watch. Is that the and one then... where he's in the blue cowboy getup? 
This uh, no, it's, no, it's um, when he's at ah, because he's going. Is that one of his movie? first films? Um, Chariot, yeah. Yeah. Because there's always that that, that that amusing thing about Arnold Schwarzenegger that, you know, when he first made it big, he offered to, you know, do the German dubs for his own films, but they wouldn't let him because basically he sounds like a yokel in German, you know. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. I, I just, the, the dubbing that always got me was a, a kid, you know, when the BBC used to sort of dub over stuff um, when, you know, swear words and things. So you'd have like Robocop and then you'd have like, forget me instead of sort of like, you know, fuck me and stuff. And it just like, it was always really amusing because the, they, they'd come up with some really random stuff just to put in yeah. there or yeah, just cut out stuff altogether. That's because BBC used to buy up the, uh, what they call like the airplane cuts of these films. So they were safer for TV. You know, they still had all the, all the blood and guts and violence, everything, but hey, you can't swear on TV. Oh no, sir. <laughs> no way. <laughs> mad. Absolutely mad. Oh, uh, Joe, sorry. Just talk about that very quickly. One of my favorite ones, which um, I didn't realize till obviously I got much older was, um, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. For whatever reason, in the UK, they couldn't use Ninja. Yeah, they yeah. Had it as Teenage Turtles, which was... Why? Yeah, it was too but, violent, but apparently. Also, at the same time, as the Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles cartoon was done, there's adverts in various magazines for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles role-playing games and stuff like that. So it was like, you could write about it. You can just say it on television. <laughs> so weird. So weird. But I used to think they were two different things. I used to think that the Hero Turtles and Ninja Turtles were two different things. I thought, hang on, they are very similar. That's a, I, I was just thinking, Americans, they've got it wrong again. It's just like, you know, I was like, oh, you know, but no. <laughs> okay. Um. All right. So uh, before we go, um, have you got anything coming up? Have you got any uh, books uh, that we need to know about uh, now? We had a launch yesterday, actually. Oh, brilliant. Ooh. What we, we, we really wanted to have a go at making some, uh, writing some crime books. And what we wanted to emulate was the comedy crime um, that, that Carl Hyarson and some of those other Florida writers create, where you've got those larger-than-life characters, the, 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 cra- the crazy, the Florida crazy. And so we decided that we would do that, but set it in the UK and Skegness, because <laughs> it's a bit like Florida. And um, and so we we also decided with this with 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 the crime thing that we would write all three books. We've written a trilogy and then release them um, more or less in one go. So um, we're actually releasing them a fortnight apart, but by mid July they'll all be out. Brilliant. So yeah, we're quite excited because. Crime is super competitive in the UK as a genre, um, whereas you know normally we've dabbled around the fringes of all the uh, of all the other genres. We've never tackled crime, so we'll either sink like a stone because we don't know what we're doing, or, or you know maybe maybe we could make a dent in the in the crime market. Who knows? But yes, the <laughs> first one is called Seal Finger. Um, Ian, I'm sure you want to explain how it came to get that title. Oh, so Seal Finger, uh, or one word. Uh, it's the book that came out yesterday, and you know we like we like to do research for our novels, and so we, we took a weekend trip to Skegness. Actually, I'm from that part of the world initially. Anyway, I'm, I'm a Lincolnshire boy, um, but we went to Skegness, and then we went to Natureland there, 
um, and we spoke to the serial people. I mean, it's great because when you're writing, you can just do that. You kind of go, hello, we're writers. Can you tell us about thing X? And we basically just said, excuse me, seal person, can you tell me anything interesting about seals whatsoever? And up in the conversation came this thing, seal finger, which is a disease specifically that you can get from seals, specifically if you're bitten by a seal. Um, and if you're bitten by a seal, the cocktail of bacteria um, that basically starts percolating through your flesh uh, causes kind of inflammation and rigidity. And I think up until the mid 20th century, the only cure was amputation. Um, and um, so, you know, we kind of go seal thing. That that's a, also sounds slightly like a James Bond film. Um, <laughs> and um, so seal finger, absolutely. So, so the seal finger came out yesterday, and then a couple of weeks time got Doggerland. You see, we can't get away from our fantasy and science fiction roots because Doggerland features, if only as a concept, the idea of dodgy Doggerland out in the North Sea. Uh, you know, buried land, you know, as it hasn't been since the Ice Age. And, you know, we just worked on this idea of what if you wanted to basically build some big concrete walls, pump out all the seawater, and essentially re-excavate Doggerland, and then maybe, I don't know, make some kind of Ice Age theme park there. Um, so Doggerland, which was the second book, so we kind of, we kind of put on our uh, nutty science fiction hats a bit for that one, um, which is the second book. And then the third one, uh, Sandraker coming out in about two weeks' time. Um, that that one is, is more uh, uh, funny goings on at, at a country home. Um, whether people will get you know turned off by the uh, gruesome murders that pepper the um, pepper the books, I don't know. It, it, we'll have to see what happens mm -hmm. there. I think there's at least one editor who kind of just went, "Can we get rid of that, 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 and that?" And that's the novel. What do you mean the man's being boiled to death in his own jacuzzi? Why can't we keep that? It's brilliant, you know. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so, yes, we'll, we'll see how the world takes to that. So, yeah, uh, we, we have a lot of fun. And books four and five, definitely going to be set in Florida. So, therefore, we're going to have to, you know, get past the pandemic and book our research trip to Florida. Of course, is, obviously, yeah. obviously. So, yeah. so tax dodge, it really isn't. <laughs> we, we're going to go over there. <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, spent some time in Florida. That's nice. Brilliant. That's the plan. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> right. Well, well, we'll leave it there then. Uh, it's been an average, an absolute privilege. Thank you very much. Really interesting. Um, thanks for speaking to us, uh, taking some time off your Sunday for uh, having a chat with us. Um, so, yeah, there you go. Uh, Seal Finger is out now with um, a, a, a four, four more books coming out over the next uh, couple of months. Three books over the next uh, month or so. Well, yeah. Brilliant. There you go. Keep an eye out for them. Um, so for tonight, I've been Matt Geary. With me has been Peter Ray Allison. Good night, everyone. John Joe Cosgrove. Take care, all. And our guests, Ian Grant. Cheerio. And Heidi Goody. Bye. Thanks for having us. No problem. Bye.